Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Okay, today on the show, I welcome Mark Champagne. Mark is an author, podcast host, and expert interlocutor. Over the years, he has interviewed some of the world's most fascinating entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, technologists, and thought leaders, including folks like journalist Carl Fussman, hotelier Chip Conley, executive coach and investor Jerry Colonna, environmentalist Paul Hawken, and many, many others. Now, Mark has just published a new book titled Personal Socrates, which is an exploration of questions that shape the lives of world-class performers, questions that have the power to change one's life and work. Now, in the book, Mark draws on his interviews as well as the stories of high performers like Maya Angelou, Coco Chanel, and Kobe Bryant to aggregate a broad series of inflection point questions. He explores the self-inquiry that catapulted people towards greater flourishing and success. And in the presentation of these stories, he invites you to engage in the same process of life inventory. Now, this conversation was a lot of fun. Mark and I probed the specific stories of extraordinary humans and their concomitant seminal questions. We discussed self-inquiry as a science on the self. I suppose if there's any famous quote that encapsulates Mark's work, it's the famous Socrates quip, the unexamined life is not worth living. In that spirit, we do a lot of examining. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Mark Champagne. Okay. Mark Champagne, good to be with you. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. Thank you, sir. I can't wait. I mean, I've I've been a, a longtime listener and often pause my workouts when I'm listening to this show. So it's it's an honor to be on the other side with you. Yeah. Well, I apologize for that, but you seem quite fit. You <laughs> seem good quite pauses. Fit. Yeah. It doesn't seem to have uh, mal-affected your physique at all, so that's good. 
Um, well, I hold in my hand this just a stunning work of art for everyone who has the privilege of watching this visually. Um, but you are, this is the impending release, Personal Socrates. Congratulations on, on this achievement. It's truly stunning piece of work. Well done. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate that. It's a two-year two year journey or two-year production and writing journey, I would say, and then probably a good decade of content and study. Yeah. Well, I, I'm aware of the gestation period of, of these kinds of projects, both mentally and psychologically, and then also just in terms of the logistics of publishing and, uh, and bringing one of these things to birth is no uh, easy task. And it is a remarkable achievement. Sure, it'll be just the achievement itself is something that we can probe um, as we uh, excavate the, the content itself. Um, but so, just to set us up a little bit, now this is a book about questions and how we can utilize inquiry as a method of reflection. Uh, and right. you know, you've aggregated. A, a stunning array of questions and in some ways i think of them as thought experiments to be applied on oneself <laughs> um and you've done that you've gathered these from a wide variety of thought leaders and intellectuals artists executives athletes folks like kobe bryant my angelo Picasso, steve jobs a bunch of others um, and i'm excited to probe at a number of them specifically but perhaps as just an on-ramp to the conversation, you uh, can give us all a little background on how you came to write the book and the questions that arose uh, for you as part of that process. Absolutely. Well, the book came out of a really tough couple of years, let's just say after, and, and I'll, I'll provide a little bit of backstory, but essentially the book came out of the realization that we are all, no matter where we're at in life, one question away from a completely different life or different outcome, if you're thinking of, of business in any sense. And how I got to that point was spending a decade in the corporate world in sales, analytics, and product management, and, you know, following that ladder and, and doing well in that job. But throughout those years, I had this reflective practice early in the morning, which was journaling. And it was just, it started with reading and trying to inject positive information into my mind before starting the day, even 10, 15 minutes, right? Just to start the day with a prime mind. And then all of a sudden, as you're reading more and more and, and reading profiles and biographies and things like that, 100% of these people were had some sort of reflective practice and they were all asking powerful questions throughout that text or and then when podcasts started to come online you would hear in the interviews these massive questions dropped in the in the conversation and i remember i always had this annoyance before uh before i was a host myself um was that the the question we'd be left because the, the arc was usually this you know, there was a history, there was a story, something was happening, it went up, it went up, it hit a climax or a wall, everything exploded. And then then the, the subject on the other side would say something like, and then I, I thought about this. 
And then life, you know, life carried on. But the host would rarely say, well, let's talk about that question. They would jump right into the next business or the next idea and how, you know, how they navigated that next road. I was writing the question down and thinking, wow, like one question completely pivoted that person's journey. And, you know, even though I was in a different place or not in, you know, similar circumstances, I had my own career and own life and whatnot, like we all do. I would then journal on the question in relation to where I was at and try to get some value from that prompt. And this went on for, like I said, about a decade, eight to 10 years uh, in that in that corporate role until it finally grew frustrated with the digital options for journaling. So I was traveling a lot and I was, you know, I had first started doing the, doing these practices in a word processor on my computer. And then as, tra- you know, I continued to travel, then I would pull out a phone or an iPad or something like that. And I w- was using uh, note apps, essentially. But there was always this disconnect of copying and pasting these prompts that I kept finding every, every morning in my reading and then using them f- to, to guide the reflection. So, and at the same time, I should, you know, I think it was, it was helpful at the time, Headspace and Calm on the meditation front were really starting to take off from a mainstream perspective. So there was a bit of a light bulb moment thinking, well, it seems like people are open to digital guidance when it comes to some of these wellness practices. And at the time, there was nothing that existed like that for journaling other than basically a word processor in an app formation. So that's, you know, what, what ended up happening was I, I left that job. I partnered up with my brother-in-law and co-founder of the app, Keo. And essentially we set out to create this, this app, which was guided by prompts. And long story short, we collaborated with a, a, a ton of stunning brands and, and, and humans, people like Adam Grant and brands like Lego and LinkedIn and and um, VaynerMedia and all these different people to to get their reflective questions and show people on the other side that you know these practices are, aren't just for meditation teachers or yoga instructors. You know, I was interviewing the chief strategy officer at VaynerMedia or chief of operations of Lego and showing how this stuff can be used in in day to day life in in really any circumstance. And it seemed to resonate well because we ended up reaching about 86.9 million people with the app. Uh, those are store impressions, but you know, nonetheless, uh, it, we were getting featured and we were really proud about that because we, uh, you know, we weren't app developers and had no idea what we were doing. We we're just trying to get something out to solve my own problem. Uh, and um, basically, I, I'll, I'll save all the details, but what happened, we reached a lot of people, a lot of features. But that didn't mean our business was working and our, our business model was, was failing us. We weren't making you know, enough money to, to, to sustain the, the further development of the app. Um, we needed more time, more resources, and, and more mental capacity. We were, we were pretty tapped out on all of those areas. And, and that's, I, I share this because that's what led to the book. Because at that moment, I, I'll never forget, I was in a co-working space in, in Toronto, Canada, and I was looking at the Apple dashboard, which was showing me the app metrics and looking at that 86.9 million. And my next step is to hit delete from App Store. 
And a whole flurry of questions, all the wrong questions essentially started floating through my mind at like warp speed. You know, how could we fail at such a colossal level? What would my ex-colleagues think that I remember when I was, you know, explaining to them that I was leaving to pursue this idea, there was this sense of, wow, like you're so courageous for doing this. And, you know, I have an idea too, but I just can't, you know, come to terms and leaving to leave this job. And here I am now feeling like, you know, my tails between my legs type thing. And we just, we failed. It's, it's done. And, um, that, that led to some really deep reflection. So I'll mm. pause there as I said a well, lot, but that's that backstory. Yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that. And I'll just probe it that a tiny bit because the question that's coming up for me, as you tell that story is what is the nature of failure is, you know, how do we define failure? What is the feeling that arises in the experience of what it is like to be me that is failure? <laughs> and yeah. all, and as and this is why self-inquiry or inquiry is so useful, is that as you begin to pull that apart and dissect it, what you're really getting at is, I'm afraid of judgment. It's what are Correct. other people going to think of me when I press delete? You know, yeah. what am I going to think of myself? Do I need the approval of others? Is my identity baked in to what I do? Like all these like super yeah. seminal questions. So, um, you know, I told you I would take you on some tangents here. Um, but I, you know, <laughs> I love it. So, so, you know, I looked up question because I was interested in like, what is the nature of question itself? And I'm, I'm, I'm about to talk to the question guy. And, uh, and I just started thinking about it because I've never really dissected the word before. But yeah, if you go back, I think in, in Latin, it's quarere or something like that, you know, which is okay. to ask, but it's also to seek. And if obviously within the word question is quest, a quest to know, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and when you apply that quest to know on yourself, you are the subject of your own science experiment. And so you're applying the rigors of the scientific method to your own life. It's like, what is my hypothesis? What is the experiment? What's the observation? What's the reasoning? How do I modify my hypothesis? What's my conclusion about myself? So as you were groping in the dark through this process, did you... What was the question that you landed on that then kind of broke the doors open? There, there, yeah, there was one big question that I only was able to get to the to the prompt by really relying on the present moment and and gratitude practices. Thankfully, the 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 three years of building that app and interviewing all of these different remarkable humans left all of these practices. But during that hit delete moment, there was so much fear and anxiety about the future and what was next that it was almost impossible to, you know, go back into the, you know, into the database essentially and retrieve all of that stuff without really doing some serious work. And that's where I I remember even when hitting delete, uh, there was a moment where I just paused, took a, a breath, and and reflected on, I'm deleting this. I don't know what's next. It doesn't feel good. It feels terrifying. 
But at the same time, I'm deleting it on a laptop that most people in the world do not have. And, you know, slowing down and trying to reframe my mind or the narrative that was starting to spin with a quick little exercise on gratitude. And I kept doing that day in and day out for, for weeks until eventually was able to be clear enough and ask the question, what do I want for my life? And that was the first series of progressive questions that no matter where you go after that question, I mean, it, it's leading you forward down the, down the path, right down the journey. And for me, it reignited the hope and possibility and the, and the drive. And then that question led to another, and then it, you know, leads to, well, who do you need to speak with? What do you need to do today just to get one step closer to that journey? Um, and that, and that, that was the moment when I, the realization was made that that question saved me because without that question, I was going into deep depression. I could feel it. I had worked in mental health in my past life and I knew the triggers and I could feel it. I remember thinking, this is this, I can see how easy this would be to slip down a, a really dark path and, you know, get to a point where, you know, maybe a question wouldn't pull me out of that. You know, something more serious would have to, to pull me out. So thankfully in my case, that, that one question changed everything for me. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that you just touched on is really important is that you can come to know the right question, but it's not as if the right answer appears within one sentence in consciousness mm -hmm. as just a spontaneous yeah. emergence. <laughs> um, yeah. As you say, this one question also precipitated other questions. I wonder, can you maybe break down that, what the process is of addressing the questions, the keystone questions that emerge? Well, I think at its core, a question gives us the luxury of a pause, right? Whether it's a pause in an, in an autopilot of an internal narrative that's driving you to a place that you don't want to be going, which was at that time for me, or a pause in just general life and society where, you know, we're not thinking and we're just moving through the motions and, and you know, a day starts, a day finishes, rinse and repeat, we, we keep going. So for me, that's why I'm obsessed with these, these questions, because if you find and you land on a question that is relatable to your life and your current circumstances, it can make all the difference. And it gives, you know, again, that luxury of slowing down to answer it. And it sparks our curiosity and trains our curiosity muscles, which is, is profiled in Chip's uh, uh, profile in the book. But just, it, you know, it's a way to train our curiosity muscles. Then all of a sudden, we start seeing more questions pop up. And we become more curious in, in essentially all aspects of life. And we start becoming more clear and more clear. And then from the clarity, we start acting with more intention and start, you know, this, I'm, I'm just explaining how, how my path was going, but also what I see in all the interviews is that it starts with clarity type seeking questions that then lead to um, intentional action or setting, you know, an intention for the day on how you want to feel, how you want to show up for yourself and others and so forth. And it just keeps snowballing in a, in a positive loop. Yeah. What really resonates there for me is pause. 
And Viktor Frankl has that, you know, amazing quote that you know, between stimuli and response lies your growth, right? Lies. Mm. That's where that pause is. If you can cultivate. And I think the question helps to precipitate or to instantiate that moment before you just react, you know, um, and this is a theme that is echoed in Stoicism, mindfulness, and all sorts of spiritual traditions is to find that pause to be responsive and not reactive. Um, and, uh, and it's so easy to become identified with knee-jerk reactions. And oftentimes that is a, um, a knee-jerk response to one's judgment of a particular event. And not to the event itself. So just yeah. that pause is so. Uh, it's well, and Jeff, just even asking, yeah. you know, when you're in the pause and, and speaking of judgment, then usually the second question is, well, well why? You know, where, where, or where's that judgment coming from? And then yeah. you know, it just starts slowly unpacking it. And to your point, it doesn't, you know, the answer doesn't have to lie in one sentence in one sitting. You, you know, James Clear says this you're, you're not going to nail your identity in one go. Uh, right. So you know, be yeah. kind to yourself, but you're clear, you know, for going through those steps and it just becomes, you know, incremental and, and, and blocks of progress. Yeah. And I think this modern society that's so punctuated right now, given everything that's going on yeah. with a lot of outrage, a lot of fear, a lot of anger, um, and just to be able to find that moment. And ask yourself, like, who would I be without that thought? Or who would I mm. be without that feeling or that sensation? And how is that? I didn't even put that thought or that sensation there. It just simply arose as phenomena in awareness. And I can witness it and not fixate or identify with it. You know, it's like this stuff. Correct. Um, so I want to get at the title for a second. Um, sure. Because it obviously references Greek antiquity. <laughs> um, and I think everyone has a general sense of who Socrates was, a brilliant philosopher, predecessor of, of Plato in fifth century BC. But what is the Socratic method and how is that relevant to this method of, of questions? So there's a backstory to the title. And, uh, it, it, it come. I actually hated the name at first, and it, it came from the owner of the the publishing company, Joey, because when I was explaining kind of my my backstory, which I just described to you and, and the listeners, and then also explaining how I was learning from all of these these uh, top level thinkers, he immediately Joey immediately said, "Oh, so the Socratic method?" I said, <laughs> "The Socratic what?" Because I, I mean, I like most people. I I knew of Socrates and know knew essentially very high level philosopher. Ask questions, many questions. That was kind of my <laughs> my yeah. level of knowledge uh, without a, any type of philosophy undergrad or anything like that. So when I started digging into it, though, what fascinated me with Socrates was that here's a guy that has a method that's been developed in, I think it was 469 BC, has stood the test of time, 
we're most of us are doing it without even knowing we're doing it. And there's a way, I, I think there is a way, or this is where my curiosity sparked with how do we how do we how do we follow the method with more intention and, and modernize it in some capacity? Because mm. I came across these essentially these six question types, clarity and and um you know, challenging assumptions and, and, and whatnot. And they were very much so used in an academic setting. You know, Socrates was was asking these type of questions to his students and so forth and, and back and forth. And I can't, without even opening the book, I mean, I, I probably can't rhyme off all six types, which, which was the problem and, and the reason for thinking, well, it, you know, if, if we can't remember the specifics of the Socratic method, then we're not going to use it intuitively and, and and intentionally. So how can we modernize that? And this is this is where the structure of the book came into. We can all remember that you know starting with being clear and 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 asking questions to unlock and, and surface more clarity uh, is a great starting point. And then that leads into intentionality and questions to help be more intentional with your thinking and your reactions. And then that's it, because if you do those two steps, the third step automatically happens, and that's expansion of opportunity, right? Because then you can see, you see the signs, everything seems more clear, your, your mind's not fogged with emotion and relationships or situations that are uh, holding you back. You can see just like a neatly organized room, you can see the back corner of the room, your mind is clear like that. So, so... Then the title really grew on me because it made sense. And the realization that, you know what, we, we can all have, or we can all be our own personal Socrates and have essentially like our Socratic coach sitting on our shoulder at all times. Yeah. I mean, the, the one quote I, I know really is the unexamined life is not worth living. I mean, I feel like that's Correct. the tag for the book, more or less. Yeah, um, it's in there, actually, that, book, <laughs> that line. Okay, good. Because, you know, that's really the core of what's happening here um, in, in inquiry. And, of course, I've always associated the Socratic method with a certain kind of uh, argumentative dialogue between individuals, yeah. generally based on questions, posing questions as a means to stimulate critical thinking, but also to refute certain presuppositions that may be of on course. faulty ground. Um, and I see this as almost uh, engaging in that kind of, uh, well, I think with Plato became more dialectic. I think that's the term he used, but that you're engaging in this dialectic or this dialogue with yourself. Um, as, yeah. as part of inquiry, which I think is fascinating uh, because whether we like it or not, we're always, it, we're, we're constantly maintaining this chatterbox in our head, right? Yeah. <laughs> of like, I'm cold. I'll put on a sweater. Are you sure you're cold? I don't know. Maybe we should, I, I don't know if I, I never liked living in the Northeast. Maybe I should, you know, you're this, like our brain is like on this nonstop chatterbox anyways. And to tame that and to engage in some kind of more intentional kinds of dialogue um i think can be uh incredibly useful uh and, and clearly and clearly you know it has been for you and for so many people um and, and i really do love the organizing principle that you leveraged for the different types of questions because like you i can't remember the six um 
yeah, you know, components. They're in the book. To, I mean, we can look at them, but <laughs> we can we can look at them. But I do yeah. remember getting clear, living intentionally, and expanding possibility or opportunity. So that that is helpful um, for me. Um, well, let's dive into some of the questions um, and some of the thought leaders from the book because that's kind of where the a lot of the meat and potatoes are. Um, sure. And uh, maybe we'll start with uh, uh, our mutual friend because we can uh, make fun of him with impunity just because he's such a good guy. <laughs> we both know him. Um, yeah. Chip Conley, who is this legendary hotelier, he was kind of the biggest, uh, I think, uh, boutique hotel owner operator in the United States at one juncture with Sean Aviv. I stayed at his first hotel, which I believe was the Phoenix in, mm. in, the, in San yes. Francisco in the Tenderloin which was pretty gritty, but he renovated an old motel and it was, made it so cool. We used to stay there all the time. It's awesome. And now he has this beautiful concept that he's uh, expanded upon called the Modern Elder Academy. We can touch on how that yeah. maybe came to be. But um, let's start with Chip. What was his question? And uh, how did you come to understand it? And then we can probe at it together. Yeah, Chip. Chip is just, I mean, he, as you know, he's just one of those, those humans that is always willing to help and, and offer, you know, graciously his time. I remember when I, when I shut the app down and when I was in that moment of, or in those, the, the, those moments of, of darkness and, and feeling lost, I, I emailed him and he fired back a few really great questions, essentially. Yeah. And so yeah. this is ironic. I, I'm, I'm kind of turning into the question guy and was just met with questions back. So, yeah. I mean, that's a bit of our backstory. Um, and so, Chip, for the, for the people that are in the book or the, pro, the, the profiles that are in the book that those people are still around today, I've interviewed all of them. So a lot of the... The, the information and the profile and the prompts are inspired by those interviews. And the people that have passed, like the Kobe Bryants and Maya Angelou, I had to do a different style of research. But in, in Chip's case, when, when we had our conversation, there was a lot of discussion around curiosity and how to train your curiosity muscles, essentially, by asking questions. So his, his prompt, uh, the opening prompt is, how can I be the most curious person in the room? And the profile goes through essentially, you know, different practices and different uh, exercises that you can do to, to kind of shift your perspective and ultimately get to the point where the most curious person in the room is also the most present. And that's where it gets really interesting on the ripple effect of being present. Because we all know, we all know someone that, you know, is in whether it's a, a Zoom meeting or in person. Uh, even Zoom's probably even worse because people think that you, you know that you can't tell when someone's not present in the, in the meeting. But you know you can. We're pretty smart humans at the <laughs> yeah. end of the day. And you know, there's just uh, I think the term that that Chip uses this this karmic capitalism or karmic uh, was it karmic capitalism? I'm probably getting that wrong. Uh, anyway, the the idea was essentially leaving leaving people feeling, you know, valued and cherished by giving the presence. And ultimately, when you're doing that, you're also intrigued and you, you start asking really good questions. And people yeah. remember that, right? Absolutely. Um, Brendan, who we both have a relationship with too, is a, a Brendan Burchard. You know, he's always 
kind of hammering on this too, is like, what is the intention that I want to bring into this interaction? And how do I bring presence into that interaction such that the person with whom I'm interacting feels valued and feels heard? And how much value that then that ultimately provides us, you know, uh, yeah. when you establish those parameters <laughs> of value, of you know, and, um, and uh, the other uh, idea that this particular prompt brought up for me, um, which is new to the experience of what it's like to be me is, is that I've become very comfortable with being confused and oh, explain. I like that. Uh, so, and this really, for me, ties into curiosity and feeds it because like, let's say me and like basically half the rest of the world have become moonlighting microbiologists over the last 18 months, right? With COVID. Absolutely. Okay. So it's like, I'll tell you everything about ACE2 receptors that you want to know. And, um, but the, the first time I was reading about how the spike protein like infects a cell and how it connects to an A2 receptor and hijacks the capacity of the cell to replicate. I mean, I didn't study any of this. And sure. so the first time I was reading like primary source data on the NIH website, I'm like, bloody fucking hell. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to like close my laptop up. I don't want to be curious about that. It's too confusing. No. Yeah. <laughs> but then... And this has happened in my life with a number of things that I've become moderately fluent with, which is just like surrendering to the discomfort of confusion and just nodding your head and going along on that ride and just being persistent and being calm and being present until you understand what the mitochondria does, you know, or you understand what short chain fatty acids do, you know? And like, of course I didn't go to school in any of these things, but there to, in order to, I think, continue to be curious, you need to drop any worry or any discomfort with confusion. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's really just opened up like, a big world. It, it's almost like, I don't know what that quote is, but the bigger fire you light in, in the darkness, all it does is reveal how much more darkness there is. <laughs> oh, that's, that's deep. I like it. <laughs> yeah. So the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And, and, you, and that's just, that's just flames here, or at least my curiosity. So I love this one. And, uh, and of course, you know, Chip, he, uh, he had this great career and then, you know, he was very, uh, surprisingly got a call from Brian Chesky, who was the, the, one of the founders of Airbnb. And Brian was like, come and be on our executive committee. And Chip shows up at Airbnb and he literally didn't understand a single word anyone was saying because they, they were like, well, here's this legendary hospitality guy. And, but Airbnb was a tech company. So they were using 
language that he literally had no idea what they were talking about. But what he was really good at was the wisdom of how to organize teams and how to listen and how to be curious. And, you know, for uh, a company, a tech company with a bunch of 20 somethings, there was this role for the modern elder. And, uh, and it was a very um, two way street because Chip was bringing in a lot of cool insight, but he was also learning so much at the same time. And that's the cool yeah. part of it. Well, and that's, and that's the second, that's the second part or topic of his profile is just around the concept of, of who a modern elder is because I, you know, Chip is the one that enlightened me on, on, on thinking differently because I think in, you know, in Western culture in general, we don't have the same level of respect for our, our elders, let's say, than in, in, in other countries or other cultures, let's say. And, you know, going back to that Airbnb experience at one point, just for the listeners, uh, the, the teams at Airbnb started referring to Chip as the the elder, which he didn't like, right? Because he, you know, when you think of elder, you think of someone that's kind of on their way out. And anyone that knows Chip, I mean, he's far from being on his way out. So he, you know, reframed it and coined the term modern elders. And and I just love that because there's an information uh, share there, right? From it doesn't matter what age you're at, but I remember around the same time that we, I had my interview with Chip, I then went on a men's group uh, retreat with every man. And one of the exercises was, I'll never forget this, it gives goosebumps just sharing it. We were lined up and we had our modern elder in front of us and we were about maybe a foot apart, you know, eyes locked in, in, into each other. And there was just, there was one prompt the the modern elder had to uh, share or pass on wisdom from their life, and then the uh, the the younger person, I guess you could say, had to then share. Well, what would you what would you like to share and pass on to the modern elder? And there was just this, you know beautiful exchange that had nothing to do with age and had everything to do with wisdom. Mm-hmm. wisdom and energy and and just you know learning together and and being a tribe and a community it was just a you know beautiful beautiful thing so i really love the work that chips up to over at the modern um elder academy yeah that's beautiful yeah I, i'm you know particularly if you look at indigenous indigenous cultures the role of the elder was such a high esteemed role because they had so much wisdom to impart and now, of course, like the allopathic medicine system sort of like, you know, keeps people alive longer, but it, but it also often cubby holes them in nursing homes and, you know, where it's just, where our elders have become seen as nuisances sometimes. And, and I think we need to reinstantiate this notion of, uh, of the indigenous culture's respect for the elder um and uh and chip is obviously on that um in spades so so let's, let's talk about another some more questions um sure sure so um there's a journalist and author who i wasn't as aware of until i actually read the book um named cal fussman right and oh, so yeah cal um 
So talk about Cal a bit and, uh, and uh, unveil uh, Cal's seminal question. Cal is, if, if anyone Googles him or listens to any interviews or podcasts, uh, I'm just warning you, you're, you're going to be on the edge of your seat just waiting for the story to unfold. Because he's, he's one of those people that is poetic in, in how he speaks. And he speaks slowly and he's got this, this raspy voice and you, you just hang on the words. And you know, I was listening to his podcast and, 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 and over time just got to the point where I, I would love to interview him and see how he comes up with or thinks about his questions because he at the time was, I think, right at the tail end of a, a long career as a writer for Esquire magazine where he had interviewed uh, a good number of U.S. presidents, and Muhammad Ali, Robert De Niro. I mean, uh, any celebrity you can think of somehow has gone through Cal's uh, tape recorder at that time. And so I wanted to know, you know, how can you, how do you ask the best questions? And that, that's his opening prompt. And I'll never forget what he shared in that. And it's something I use in my own, uh, on my own podcast now. And it was this, this tactic of putting in the, the research and the effort and, and, and being prepared for the interview and writing down every question that comes to mind and just rapid fire, just firing them off and, and, and having that list there. But then when going into the interview to rip that up and coming back to what we were talking about, about presence, because, you know, and, and what I write about in the profile is that, you know, you don't have to be a, a podcast host or a journalist to leverage this. It's, it's really coming that the, the moral of the story is that you come in doing the mental work and the prep the questions and, and really the intentions that you want to get out of that. But then when you dial into the situation, the meeting, the interview, whatever it is, you are 100% present in the inf information exchange happening and you're trusting that your mind will pull down the right question next. And it's, I mean, it's a beautiful thing to experience when that happens, right? It is. It's a, it's a tightrope and it requires confidence and and to take a certain leap. And I often think of it in, um, as you were talking, I was relating it to music where let's say, a, you know, a pianist is rehearsing for a big performance at Carnegie Hall or wherever. Um, and there is a certain, like, you know, you're learning your scales and you're practicing the piece and you're building what I call the technical well, but then when you get on stage, you need to throw the technical well away. It's sitting there, of course, below the crust of consciousness. But at that juncture, you're really not tapping the technical well. You're tapping the spiritual well. And, um, it, but it does take a certain leap of faith. You know, I just interviewed Paul Hawking two days ago on his new book called Regeneration. And he's coming uh, on my show in a few weeks. <laughs> Oh, great. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's just such an amazing, inspiring guy. And, and there, there's a tremendous amount of technical information to know about how to reverse global warming. Um, yeah. And IPCC reports and, you know, the Paris Accords and, you know, 1.5 degrees centigrade and 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. And there's all this, like, facts and figures and, you know, renewable energies and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, I had to just, like you say, 
when I sat down with him, I had built the technical well, but just kind of like, you know, don't overthink it, right? Yeah. Um, just be I'm there. have to use that myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I also had the, the, the luxury of um, listening to Rich Rawls' interview of him uh, that they had just done, so... You know, well, that's what that's it. how mine came to be. I listened to that interview with Rich Roll and then reached out to to Paul saying, oh, I'd love to to dive into some of the the questions that we should be asking independently and as 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 a collective to really make uh change right now. Right. Yeah. That's funny. You We're tell, on the same you, path with this one. <laughs> yeah, you tell a great story. Um that was a seminal moment clearly in Cal's life about a letter that he wrote as a very young kid. Can you talk about that for a sec? I can, I can. Uh, I, I think I want to say he was seven, but I, I, I might be saying that incorrectly. He, he, but he, right. He was a young boy and it was, it was the time when uh, president Kennedy had been assassinated and Cal at that, that time wanted to know, how it felt for uh, uh, President uh, Johnson. Almost, I almost forgot that one. Uh, Lyndon B. Johnson. How how he felt to be essentially defaulted to president. Like, did did he want to be president? You know, was he was he excited about this, or how, how do you feel in a situation like that? And he did what most people wouldn't do or didn't do uh many people i think probably were thinking about that prompt and that question but he wrote it down and put it in an envelope and addressed it to the white house and yeah. i think it was about a month or so after a letter comes back and he he tells the story i mean i'm trying to tell the story like cal because again he's so poetic and how he speaks it's you know he goes to the mailbox or, or his, I think his, his mother went to the mailbox, came with the letter. And obviously there, there was just this excitement. And there's a letter from the White House. The neighbors were coming over, like everyone gather in the kitchen type thing. Right. And, and they open it up and there was uh, a beautiful message in there uh, from, from the White House that seemed from Cal's perspective uh, that wasn't, you know, a canned response that goes out to every single person, at least in those times, right? It's probably different sure. now. But there, there were little nuances to the letter that came back uh, in that message. And he was he was the the talk of the town. And I remember him saying something to the effect of going back to school that, you know, at that point, he, he transitioned from the, the boy at school to the man uh, in yeah. his class type thing. But the lesson, though, and, and I think that this lesson has fueled his career and what he's doing was that one question, again, can get you to the most powerful person in, in, the, in the world at that time, essentially, right? And it, it relates back to how, how I feel about these prompts. Like One question can change everything. And for Cal, it did because it, it, it sent him down a path of asking questions for a living. Yeah, certainly that was ample encouragement to get a letter from the president yeah. of the United States. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, that's a great story. Um, so let's talk about Kobe. Everybody knows Kobe. Of course, I um, misspent a good decade of my life trying to imitate him uh, on, the, on the, <laughs> the mean streets of New York City. I was a street baller for 10 years. 
okay. uh, messing up with, uh, I probably had no business being in a lot of places that I was as a smaller, <laughs> as a smaller fellow. But, um, but there I was trying to be like Mike and then like Kobe. So, um, and he obviously inspired so many people in so many ways. So we get into Kobe and, and his yeah. question, if you, if you could. Of course. Kobe Kobe was challenging to write because there there's so much mental fitness in his life and and in his books and interviews that it, it was like where do you where do you even focus? Um but I I landed on something that I feel like all of us have experienced at one point in our lives and and probably continue to experience. I mean, I know I still do and I'm 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 in, I mean, uh, surrounded by these practices all the time. So his prompt, and I'll never forget, it was the editor for Stephen Hawking's book, A Brief History of Time, that actually helped me with this prompt. Because he had taken a look at, at the book at one point and completely changed the, the feeling of it. And, and his prompt is, how do I get to the rim? And he changed it because it, it, this has nothing to do with basketball. But, you know, it's interesting because we know Kobe, obviously, from, from his basketball career. And it has everything to do with how Kobe managed his internal negotiation. And specifically, things like, and this is where I think it relates to a lot of us, but how many times has, has your alarm gone off in the morning or your, your, uh, however you're waking up, and you go through this mental negotiation at what seems like mock speed about sleeping maybe a little bit longer, or I'll get the workout in in the afternoon instead of the morning. I know my case a couple times has happened where, uh, you know what, I went to bed a little bit later. Sleep is really important for my health. I just need to sleep an extra 20 minutes. I'll do my writing. This was in the middle of writing the book. I'll write at 2 p.m. instead. I'll block off that time. And we all know what typically happens. Life happens. And the writing doesn't happen, and you know you're feeling bad about yourself because you you didn't you didn't check off the thing that you wanted to do that day. The workout doesn't happen, and so forth. And you know, in my research on Kobe, he was no different. You know, he was waking up I think at four or four thirty in the morning to get an extra workout in on top of the regular team workouts for the day. And he, you know, he stated that. I, <laughs> It wasn't that he was springing out of the bed every time his alarm went off, but he spent the time getting clear on why he was springing out of the bed, and that was to win an NBA championship, right? I mean, that was Kobe's motivation, but we all have our own motivations. But again, if we can get clear on what do I want for my life, right, or what what is what is it that I'm I'm, I'm working towards this year? Then you can keep that you keep that motivation or that answer as your anchor, and when that negotiation starts, because it will, you can cut it, stop, right, and and again you have that pause. All right, I'm getting up and I'm going. So, so yeah, that was I mean that was the the motivation there, and he left another really interesting nugget too about just how powerful our minds are that, that I'd love to share. And he he provide uh, some somewhat of a quote like. I think this is when he had torn at one point in his career, he torn his uh, Achilles, and he was out, obviously recovering, and and he makes makes the point about the power of the mind. That okay, I'm sitting on my my couch or my chair, I can't really walk well. It's healing, but if the house catches on fire, and I need to run up the stairs to grab my kids and save my kids, 
you're not thinking at all about your injury and you just go into activation mode, right? I mean, that's your mind. That is absolutely. all your mind, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, and there's ways to, with that insight, there are ways to uh, game the system, if you want to call it sure. that. I mean, you know, you may be, I mean, pain is inevitable, right? You may have sprained your ankle and you're feeling this throbbing sensation and you're really frustrated around because you can't do anything or something more psychological, like maybe you got passed over for that big promotion or you didn't get that part that you were going out for and there's a feeling of disappointment that's welling up inside of you. And then out of the blue, your sister calls and she's like, guess what? I'm pregnant. And all of a sudden yeah. you're going to be an uncle and you're so excited. Yeah. And of course, like that, where, right? where did the pain in your ankle go? <laughs> it just yeah, disappeared. Absolutely. Well, where did your disappointment about not getting that part go? It just disappeared. And, uh, and to realize that these are all kind of gymnastics of the mind. And, you know, I have like a little photo um, of my daughter, uh, my middle daughter, uh, Lolly that I keep in my wallet. And in a way I, I play it as a trump card because, you know, oftentimes I have a lot of modalities that I can <laughs> leverage uh, around emotion, but I can always just pick that up and look at it. And it just eclipses any other negative thought or negative sensation that's arising in consciousness. So sometimes I'm like, okay, that's my little trump card. And it reminds me just of that again, yeah, that all we have in life is the experience that exists within our mind. And, and where are we going to focus our, that attention? <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, can, can so we I stay that, there? Because that's a great, yeah. that's a great example. And it, 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 it makes me think of other interviews as well, but just that, that reminder system that you have in your wallet with your, your daughter's photo I mean, even Olympic Apollo Ono is another profile in the book, Olympic level athlete, and his Olympic level reminder system are post-its in the places he sees most often in his house to remind him, you know, why he's doing something or what, you know, what what's going well in his life, for example. And, and I just I want to, to pause and bring that up because it's something I think anyone can do right now within a matter of two minutes and have the confidence that you have that happiness list or that list of things, people and activities that instantly can change your mood and mindset, right? If you just yes. ask the question, like, what are the five or 10 things that I know without a shadow of a doubt will put a smile on my face? Simple as that, right? And then, you know, when, when something comes up, you, you default to the list. Yeah. It's so simple and it's such a useful you know, practical quotidian tool. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, Kobe had a very distinct, clear mission, right? You know, this idea of winning an NBA championship, you could just paint it on the wall or whatever. And he, he lost some before he won some. Um, and, and it's that kind of vision might not be as clear to you or to someone listening or to me, you know, we're likely not competing for an NBA championship. Um, but it, it really does help to get clear about 
what your vision is about what you are manifesting. And this was a kind of a Wayne Dyer um, concept, but he had this idea of manifesting from the end. So becoming very, very clear on what that is. I mean, for you, it may be, you know, the release of this stunning book where that is your goal. And then you're just manifesting from the end. So when you're doing that, life becomes really peaceful and light because you're just chopping wood and carrying water in the Buddhist tradition anyways. Yeah. You know, and you're just waking up and doing the work that informs the manifestation of that end product. And you yeah. can be protean and flexible about what that end product is. And that's fine. There's no shame in that. But, uh, but it really helps that clarity. Really oh, helps. It just makes, it makes life so much more enjoyable. And, and I, I feel it right now because I couldn't be in a more different place with the launch of this book than when I was at launching the app. I mean, the app was very much number of people, conversions, retention, all of that. Whereas this book, and it just, I think it happened naturally with the process that I was going through. Of, of course, I, you know, I'd, I'd love for as many eyes to hit the pages and minds to be affected. But my ultimate goal is actually to go through the launch process clear. So that mm. I can see when, you know, when we're talking about courses that that feels right, that feels right to go down that path or this doesn't feel right. And just to, to, to be excited for the unknown that I know I'm putting the effort in, so I know results will come, but I don't know exactly what those results are and that's okay. And being excited about the, the opportunity that lies within the spider web of, of what a project like this can bring. And it's just, it feels so much lighter than the app. So much lighter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, good. Good for you to <laughs> yeah, be going into it that way. And, um, and really what I'm hearing from you is that you're more concerned with staying close to the work than you are any adulation that your ego might require. And we yeah. all are human. Love to have yeah, the, of course. the flames of my ego fan from time to time. But if we can learn anything from people like Kobe or Michael Jordan, they were so close to the work. I mean, they were talented. Sure, they had some God-given abilities, but they would have never done anything near what they accomplished if they hadn't stayed so diligently close to the work. So anyways, it's uh, something that I try to remind myself of along the time. Let's talk about Coco Chanel. Totally different. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that, that was a hard profile. Good. Because you, I love because you, you really pulled in so many, uh, such a multiplicity of characters here. So, uh, Coco, take it away. Yeah, Coco Chanel. I mean, that man, she, she was, she was challenging. I, I mean, I, I didn't interview her. I guess I could have when I was super young, uh, <laughs> had I met Maybe. her, but, um, 
Coco, when writing that one, that was one of those start stops about three times, and I had to to jump into other profiles and give it give it time to breathe a bit. But eventually landed on something that felt right. And and her opening prompt is, uh, is around the idea of like how you want people to feel right when when you leave, or or how can you become irreplaceable? I think is the exact language. And if you think of Coco, and it doesn't take long. You just start looking at a few YouTube videos or some of the reading some of the, her 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 books or her biographers, I should say. She had this presence, and it's so interesting because the presence actually links with any of her work, like you know Chanel Number no. Five. Everyone knows about that perfume, and it and it commands this presence. And you know, so does Coco, right? So the her whole profile is is centered around, or or what what was inspired by the research and in, in how she lived her life, is around slowing down and pausing and thinking about how we want to leave people feeling when we leave a room, right? Because people people will leave with something, and it's either a feeling or. Uh, uh, a vibe into the room that we we don't want to be left or or not or maybe we don't even know how people are thinking about us. So if we can again take some active uh, reflection or, or deploy some active reflection, then we can we can be more intentional with when we show up and command that presence, uh, just like a Coco Chanel has, and how her brand and legacy continues to. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, literally an aroma has outlived her <laughs> you know? yes. uh, um, in, in number five to create something so resilient and, and timeless as part of your legacy is i suppose irreplaceability um and uh i think we've all engaged in certain kinds of exercises from time to time of like you know what's my epitaph or, or what is the eulogy that will be given mm-hmm. about me at my funeral and it really does focus uh, uh, our attention around, like, what is my mark? What is my unique signature for the world? And that can be very clarifying because, you know, we could be doing a million different things. And it is very focusing uh, yeah. in a way to, um, to, to kind of engage in this kind of like this, what is my epitaph kind of. Uh, well, yeah, and, and and this is the objective with all these profiles. I mean, they're they're not new practices. I'm not inventing anything. A lot of these these practices have been around for thousands of years. I'm not inventing new questions, but you know, there's slight shifts in perspective that then land with interesting. Like even for for me, I mean, I was learning about. I didn't know much about Coco Chanel other than what you most people know on the surface level. But as I was diving in and, and reading and, and doing the research to write the profile, I mean, it caused me to sit back and, and think a little bit, right? And and do it from a different angle or different lens, which you yeah. which which you can continue to revisit this. Yeah, well, it was so interesting. I mean, I didn't know anything about her, honestly. That she was in an orphanage growing up that mm-hmm. was uh, run by nuns, which more than likely influenced. The creation the of the black, black dress. dress. I was like, Correct. oh my God, that's such a good story. <laughs> um, 
you know, one of the things when I was uh, unpacking that question, how do I come, how do I become irreplaceable? One of the questions that came up for me, and, uh, and this is sort of a Byron Katie technique, where she flips the question on its head. I asked myself, how do I become replaceable? Ooh. And I often ask that in a business context because um, the more replaceable I am, the more growth that it provides for those within my company, for example. I happen to be the CEO of my particular small little corner of the universe. But what I always actually like to instill is within the companies that I've run is a, um, a feeling of replaceability or dispensability. Because if you are replaceable and dispensable, there is more likelihood that then you will be promoted or grow within the company because management will look at you and say, and they won't say, well, God, Mark is the only one that can do that job. I can't sure. promote Mark because, you know. So, um, so I, like I think that. there's actually quite a bit of wisdom in making yourself replaceable. and. Uh, and thinking about that a little bit. So all these questions have their flip opposite. Oh, I love it. I love it. This stuff lights me up. It's it's endless. Yeah. It's so good. So we'll do, let's do one more and then we can just kind of, you know, take it out into outer space. Um, So Jerry Colonna, who I, I know vaguely um, who I know him as an investor and I know he does a lot of coaching for CEOs and, and um, and to, and executive. So uh, go with Jerry for a minute. Jerry, yes, Jerry is. He's he's another one that when you listen to him speak, he speaks slowly, and you you hang on the words and you listen. And his Jerry's backstory was, uh, or is I should say, is he founded. Uh, I can't remember who his partner was. The name escapes me. Uh, but Fred, I think it's Fred Wilson. Right? Fred Wilson, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, so they founded uh, Flatiron Ventures in New York at the you know, in the dot com era, and they from from my research or uh, what he shared with me, they were they were they were the hot investment firm at that time in that space and technology, and things oh, yeah. were rocking for for them. You know, financially, uh, he was doing really well. Uh, you know, he was out meeting the who's who and and whatnot, but inside he was not doing so well and there there was a disconnect to the point where i think it was right near or right after 911 he found himself on a subway platform in new york questioning whether he was going to jump off in front of a train and i mean you mentioned your your daughter's uh photo in your wallet his kids image faces flashed in front of his mind and gave him that microsecond to make a different decision and i mean i think a lot of people and myself included because he's he he's imparted a lot of wisdom on myself and I, i've actually reread his profile for myself and journaled on it um in in a couple times in the last uh few months actually when when i was faced with some challenging times because jerry you know, he made it through that and, and through his working, uh, through his work with, with CEOs and startup founders and whatnot, he's kind of been known as the CEO whisper and he helps people again, you know, slow down and think and reflect. Um, 
But ultimately, what, what I learned from him is he, he really focuses on getting people to a point where realizing that we can all meet the world as it is, you know, and that everything is impermanent. And that's what his profile is, is all about, is really, you know, how, how can you accept the world as it is? And especially right now, you know, this, that was one of the times just going, there's so much uncertainty, there's so much volatility out there and so many differences of opinions when it comes to everything going on with this, this pandemic and, and so many other topics right now that there's some comfort knowing that all is impermanent, that this too shall pass, you know, the good passes, the bad passes, but this will pass as well. And to find some sort of solace or some sort of comfort in accepting where we're at right now. And, you know, I would layer on another or basically practice stack on uh, something from like Ryan Holiday or Stoicism and focus on what you can control in the situation. Mm. So when you add those two together, you've got a nice little formula to really process challenging situations. And, um, you know, I'm really thankful for Jerry for that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think this cuts to potentially the most existential question we can ask about what is the nature of being human or being conscious. Um, and I'll balance that serious grave question with something flippant, which is like, we've all been drunk, most of us at some point or another, and we're filled with um, courage and clarity and of, of, of that kind of inebriated kind of like, I can do anything only to melt into a pathetic puddle of the hangover, <laughs> you know, the next morning. So true. And, and, uh, and I might say to you, you know, Mark, well done. This is the best book I've ever read. It's going to be a number one New York Times bestseller and I could stoke your ego and you could sort of revel in your ego stoking. Uh, but notice that the same part of you that feels pride also feels jealousy or envy or disappointment. And it is, it is the identification with this part of ourselves that really informs what is known as the ego. And oh, yeah, yeah. the ego can be the origin of a tremendous amount of suffering. And the more that we can witness phenomena arising moment to moment, essentially become completely comfortable with impermanence, the more that we can eschew suffering. And this is right out of the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, that there is this state called dukkha, which is really just a state of suffering, but it's more a state of unsatisfactoriness in one's life. And it is very, very connected to an inability to recognize impermanence. And this notion that there is this that I am this stable self and 
I am separate from you and I'm separate from nature and I'm separate from God and I'm living in this external mean universe that's dominated by survival of the fittest. And all of this is, is quite honestly an illusion. There is no real reliable, stable self. We just explored it. It's changing at every moment. I mean, yeah. really, the experience of being alive is really experience. That's it. It's, I mean, you could think of it as witnessing thoughts, sensations, feelings arise and subside into consciousness moment by moment. Um, sure. But the more that we can connect to that sacred presence, which appears just again and again, in so many of the stories uh, and questions that you featured in this book, uh, the more we feel light. Mm -hmm. And enlightenment might just be simply that, just feeling light, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and so much of that, uh, I think, can has its germ in the recognition of impermanence. And it's, it's a very liberating idea. Um, because when we, when we're not thrusting the needs of our ego onto each other, then we really become whole. When I don't need your approval to feel good about myself, um, or if I don't think that I'm being judged through the eyes of the world around me, but I'm absolutely 100% good with who I am, then I'm living in the absence of need. And when we don't have need, we tend to then think of love as something given. We begin to tap into compassion. We bring loving kindness to the presence of suffering. So it's just, uh, this is an area where I really focus really on my own life. Um, and, and I thought, it was, and I'm glad that, that I'm so glad that you addressed it. Well, I feel, I mean, I shared it with just the experience of, of the, the book, right, and the launch, and I feel like I, I'm just starting to hit a tip of what that feels like. And I've never felt like that in my life. And, and I have to say, I, I, you know, I agree with you. It feels lighter, and it just feels, there, was, there have been moments in the last six to 12 months where I, I remember sitting back, and my wife and I, we'd talk, like, we... We would say things, we should feel very stressed right now, but for whatever reason, we don't. And there's this, again, this trust in the path and the journey that we're, we're all together, obviously. And, and for myself, like there's trust in the work that I'm putting out there and that it's the right work and it feels right. And thinking of Jerry and, and, and like you just said, if the book hits these, these lists or whatever, that's great. I'll celebrate that, but that's not, that too is impermanent, right? So the more I can dive into the present and the fact that because of this, this project, you and I are, are getting to connect and, you know, I'm going to hang up this, 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 uh, this podcast feeling energized and excited for the evening. I mean, it doesn't get better than that, right? No, the process is the product. Always. always, we just always. keep we keep relearning that over and over yeah. again. You know, for the last hour and eleven minutes and thirty nine seconds, I have been right here with 
you and nowhere else. And that, that lights us up as humans to give each other that sort of attention. I mean, we talked about it when we talked about Chip, right? Being absolutely available and present with our attention for each other. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't really awesome. get any better. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> so, Mark, tell us where we can find this book and, and when it comes out. And give us a few logistical sure. details on it. Well, I mean, the easiest just to keep everything in one place and where you can connect with me as well is just behind behindthehuman.com. That's my personal site. And um, it'll be available on Amazon, uh, but also directly through the publisher, Baron Fig. And I'm warning you now, you might, you know, get sucked into looking at journals and pens. Their, their, <laughs> their products are very nice and complement this type of stuff. So uh, have fun. And uh, my one piece uh, of advice to everyone listening, going th- whether it's with this book or any of these practices is it's just enjoy it and, and, and go into them open without judging yourself and being, you know, be kind to yourself and enjoy, explore, right? There's just so much to explore. One thing leads to, to another practice and another uh, perspective shift or set of, uh, or knowledge, if you will, and uh, enjoy it, enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mark. I, I really learned a lot from beginning to, to know your work. And it, it has really uh, precipitated a lot of thought in my own mind around how the, the utility of questions, not just for myself, but also for public discourse and dialogue. You touched on it just a few minutes ago. This era in human history is riddled and punctuated by kind of vitriolic exchanges, right? And we see it on social media all the time, kind of private acts happening in public where people feel uh, kind of in their amygdala hijacked state or whatever they feel, the license just to kind of tear each other apart. And, you know, disagreement is a natural part of what it is to be in community. But go back to Socrates, you know, if you were kind of in that public square and you were in dialogue, the usefulness of questions is so good. So what I would say is like to a lot of people listening, it's like you're going to come across people that have different points of view. And, you know, yes, we should strive to, to disagree without being disagreeable. But even more, instead of just firing back some reactive response, ask a question, you know, give that invitation. Yeah. Be like, okay. You know, instead of being like, you know, I mean, I won't even touch all of the third rail issues (laughs) because there are just so many. (laughs) Um, But instead of just girding yourself to the need of, to the need of being right, just say, Hey, why do you think that? Or, you know, send me some more. Can you send me some more information? That's really interesting. How did you come to that, you know, place? And it really, uh, you know, it, it, it is a tool of nonviolent communication that I think is so useful right now. So I, I appreciate you um, exalting the, the practice of questions and, and questioning 
I know this book is going to help a lot of people. So thank you. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate that. Yeah, right on. To be continued. We'll do to it again. To be continued. Absolutely. There's no shortage of questions out there. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> All right. Love you, brother. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Mark Champagne. Pick up a copy of his new book, Personal Socrates, by going to BehindTheHuman.com, or I suppose Amazon. And feel free to drop me a line anytime at JeffK at OneCommune.com. And if so inclined, write a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, we are publishing the video version of all these conversations on Commune's YouTube channel. So to support the podcast, subscribe to the YouTube channel at youtube.com slash one commune. I'd like to thank all the people that make this show happen. Jake Lau, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fretz, Kamali Martin, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. <laughs>